Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. At this point in our story, Mary and Joseph have encountered the angel Gabriel who is sent from God to Galilee to tell them that a child will be born to them who will be the Christ. In turn, Mary offers herself as a servant of God. Following this heavenly encounter, Mary sets out to visit her cousin Elizabeth, where Elizabeth praises Mary for her great faith. In response, Mary sings a hymn of praise to God known as Mary's Magnificat, named after the first words in the canticle, Magnificat anima mea dominum, my soul magnifies the Lord. Hear now the scripture story from the first chapter of Luke, verses 39 through 55. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb.'" Why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. This is my favorite moment of the week when I get to sing this song with you all. Let's sing together. dawn from on high it will break on us shining on those living in shadows guiding our feet into the way of peace you will guide you will guide
Before I jump into the message, I just want to take a very brief moment here to say a word of thanks and gratitude to each of you who have participated in the I'm In Stewardship Campaign and to give you an update on where we are. And it really is great news and it's an opportunity to celebrate as well as the challenge. Uh, to date, we have 496 pledges for uh, about $2,220,000. Uh, that's all pledged toward uh, the ministries for 2022. The great news is that we are only $115,000 away from the high water mark of pledging at St. Andrew in our history. $115,000 away. That is remarkable work, and I want to say a word of thanks to each of you who have already pledged. If you have not yet pledged and feel called by God to do so, you'll see some pledge cards in the pews and seats among you. You can simply fill that out and drop it in the offering plates. You can also go online and pledge at the gift page. But we are so close, and I would love to celebrate with you by the end of this year the fact that we have had a record pledge year. Despite a pandemic, despite all the challenges of life that we are sharing together, we are committed together to ministry uh, and uh, life-transforming ministries for 2022. Thank you, each of you, for your faithfulness. I want you to thank you. Thank you. I'd like you to think about somebody in your life, either in the present day or over the course of your life, that you, you can think of that, that you've, you've gone to time and time again whenever you've been in a time of uncertainty or a time of crisis or distress of some kind, a moment of truth, a time when you needed some advice, some support. You might remember in the second film of the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker discovers that he needs some help on his quest to become a Jedi Knight. He knows he can't achieve the greatness that, uh, that he has, is called to fulfill without some guidance and some training. He needs someone to provide some very practical knowledge, some direction, so that he can effectively use the so-called force, the energy of the universe. And so on this isolated planet in the galaxy, Luke meets up with that elfish character by the name of Yoda, who seems like the most unlikely guide. You know, he is like a 900-year-old, three-fingered, pointy-eared, unknown species who speaks in cryptic diction, but they form this really unique bond. And over time, Yoda draws out of Luke Skywalker this call this sense of, 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 of purpose in his life and, and helps him over time develop uh, the courage to use the force. Uh, Yoda says to him, train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Named must your fear be before banish it you can. I thought that was pretty funny too. To be Jedi is to face the truth and choose, give off light or darkness, be a candle or the night. Who's your Yoda? Do you have a Yoda in your life? Maybe it's a mother, a father, a coach, a teacher, a colleague at work, a supervisor, uh, somebody like a 12-step sponsor. Do you have a Yoda in your life? A Yoda is someone to whom you can go time and time again whenever you find yourself at a crossroads in life or in uh, unfamiliar territory when you, 
You really need somebody you can trust. Somebody who loves you enough to hold you accountable to your purpose, your possibility. However far we have journeyed in our lives, each of us would not have gotten as far as we've gotten were it not for some trusted Yodas along the way. Isaac Newton, the architect of the great scientific revolution, one of the brightest minds on the planet, even Isaac Newton pointed to those who came before him. What did he say? If I've seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Upon whose shoulders are you standing? The very first Christmas might never have happened. Honestly, might not have ever happened were it not for this Jewish Yoda by the name of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is barely a footnote in the Bible, but she is the linchpin to the story of Christmas. We only have a handful of details about Elizabeth's life. We know, for example, that she's married to a priest by the name of Zechariah. We know that she's a descendant of the great Aaron, right, the older brother of Moses. We know that um, she's a model of faithfulness because in chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, Luke calls her, quote, blameless, blameless before the Lord. But we also know this other important detail that despite her faithfulness, she is childless. And that one sign of God's favor in the ancient world, uh, this, this blessing of God's uh, favor on a woman's life was the ability to bear children, and Elizabeth is unable to do so. And she and Zechariah, no doubt, had prayed hard for kids. They, they would have given anything for kids, but it wasn't to be. And by the time we meet her in Scripture, she is a card-carrying member of the AARP, Right? advanced in years. I mean, I don't own the card, but I'm one of those now, so I can say that. Her name is Elizabeth, which means in Hebrew, my Lord has promised, or the Lord is my oath. And she lives this simple life with Zechariah in the hill country of Judah, far from the spotlight of the world. By the world standards, we might call her today a hillbilly. She seems so inconsequential. But without Elizabeth, I am convinced there would be no Christmas, at least not the kind of Christmas that we have today. The Christmas story begins not with Mary or Joseph, not with angels or shepherds or magi or an eight-pound, five-ounce baby Jesus. Some of you know that line. Instead, it begins with Elizabeth. It begins with Elizabeth out in the hill country. It begins with this implausible, really impossible news from an angel by the name of Gabriel who shows up not to speak with Elizabeth, but shows up to speak with Zechariah, her husband, and says, Zechariah, I know you and Elizabeth are getting ready to settle into retirement, but it's time to get that nursery ready because the two of you, believe it or not, are pregnant. He says, it's happening. Don't ask questions. I don't understand this any more than you do. I'm just the messenger here, Zechariah, but according to my heavenly sources, God is really up to something big these days, and uh, it's all going to start with you. Well, Zechariah, if you remember the story, can't believe it. In fact, he doubts whether the angel was legit, and the angel, in response, mutes him for the length of the pregnancy. 
which is not a bad idea, basically, right? <laughs> it's better when your wife is pregnant to say less and to listen more. Gabriel leaves the hill country, makes his way to Nazareth to visit this young peasant teenager by the name of Mary. Mary, he says, I need you to get off Instagram for a minute, put down your iPhone, I got some new, we have to talk, you're pregnant, I know it sounds crazy. If your parents ask you anything about this, just say, mom, dad, it's God's child, that should settle everything, right? Just like that, Gabriel's gone. Gabriel gets around. Mary is, we don't know this, the story doesn't say it, but it has. I wish a woman would have written at least one of the Gospels. We would have had this whole new perspective on this pregnancy stuff. It would have been fascinating. Luke doesn't say it, but we have to assume Mary's shell-shocked. Her whole world has been turned upside down. And so she does the only thing she can think to do. She runs to the hill country to meet up with her relative, Elizabeth. In the Greek, it says that she doesn't just run, she sprints. And who could blame her? Gabriel had told her not to worry, but how could she not worry? She sprints to see Elizabeth, hoping to somehow make sense of a situation that doesn't make any sense at all. Confused, fear-stricken, she's standing on the edge of the world, she meets Elizabeth, her wise and trusted Yoda. And it's Elizabeth in her wisdom and in her experience and faithfulness assures Mary that it's all God's doing. Why? Because Elizabeth, Elizabeth trusts the promises of her Lord. Elizabeth, whose name means God has promised, informs Mary that all of God's promises are finally coming true through you, Mary, through your very life. You are blessed. The whole world's going to be blessed by you. Mary couldn't have gotten through it, I'm convinced, without Elizabeth. And neither can we get through some of the craziness and messiness of our own lives were it not for the wise, trusty people whose uh, grace and wisdom inspires us to be courageous. Whenever God calls our number, whenever our time is, is there to, to step up and and lean in. We all need an Elizabeth to remind us that we are not the first to be called, that God has, has very specific need of us, every one of us in the world. Who's your Yoda? Where do you begin to even look for a Yoda? I love that in his gospel, Luke gives us a clue as to where at least maybe to start by looking for one. He tells us that Elizabeth lives in the hill country. And this little detail is not accidental, it's not trivial. Elizabeth doesn't live in the centers of politics and knowledge and religion, um, culture. Elizabeth doesn't live where people are defined by their titles or by their credentials or their influence or positions. Elizabeth lives far away from the comforts and privileges of daily life in the hill country. And the Judean hill country was a place that had a way of maturing and testing and deepening someone's faith. The difficulty of just getting through a single day or season in the hill country, struggling with agricultural challenges, is water going to come, are crops going to grow? All of this forced a kind of dependence 
on the providence of God. And living in the hill country away from the resources and comforts of daily life fostered this sense of deep trust that at the end of the day, God's going to provide for me. This assurance that, that God will provide even for your basic needs. And Hill Country had, gave people the wisdom that, that transcended the book smarts of the smart people in the city. There's something about Elizabeth's context, the Hill Country, that has shaped her understanding of herself and of God and of her world. I'm not suggesting that we all run off to the hill country to find a Yoda. What I am suggesting is that you think of the hill country as metaphor. Metaphor for the spiritual landscape of our lives. Where we experience that same hardship, adversity, where we struggle, where sometimes we doubt, where sometimes we have to wait for God to show up and provide for us. When people live in those difficult, often disorienting spaces, the so-called hill country places, for any length of time, they will either come out of them completely broken or they will come out strong in the broken places. How did Ernest Hemingway put it? The world breaks everyone and afterward many are strong at the broken places. And every Yoda, everyone, Every single Yoda has been in some way broken by the world and emerges stronger at the broken places. If you want to find a Yoda, go to the breaking places. Go to those places where breaking happens and you'll find your Yodas. Hospital rooms, classrooms with 12-step groups, uh, places where you go with therapy and hear somebody listen to you and repeat back to you your own hill country. Um, the hill country is this arena. It's the arena where the battles of our lives are played out every day and where contenders are forged, where our faith and our courage are hard fought. And some will walk out stronger from those places, stronger than when they entered. Some will come out with more persistence, more grace, more grit, more trust. There's nothing to fear. Those people that emerge with that strength are the Yodas of the world. And what makes Elizabeth so indispensable to Mary? What is it about her? It's that Elizabeth knows what it's like to walk in Mary's shoes. Elizabeth has been down a similar road, not the same road, but a similar one. But she's not too far down the road that Mary can't touch her and see her and be inspired by her. The crisis for Mary is not simply that she's pregnant. That's a big one. The real crisis is that she's asked to believe that she's pregnant with the Son of God. That in her womb is the transformation of the whole world. Elizabeth confirms that truth for her. She says, I, I don't, it doesn't say it, but I think she says, hey, you know, Mary, Gabriel's getting around. Um, he dropped by here first. I'm pregnant. I'm a little far ahead now, but um, it's all so inconceivable, and yet I believe it. You can too. Anyone whose counsel is worth their salt will be quick to affirm that they know a lot. They don't know everything. 
They've seen a lot, but they haven't seen everything. But based on what they have seen and what they know, they have a, an understanding of a bigger picture. And what you find in looking at their lives is this awareness that at any moment, it's entirely possible that God will do a new, unexpected, surprising thing in their lives. They know that their lives are not finished yet. The comedian Paul Poundstone, she used to say, you know, the reason adults are always walking around asking kids what they want to be when they grow up is because they're looking for ideas. (laughs) And you look at Elizabeth and you see that quality so clearly. Her life is far from over. She's endured the cultural shame of barrenness her whole life, and yet she never conceded. Her name means the Lord has promised, and she believes the promise will be fulfilled. She never looked at her situation and said, it's over, or I'm over. She never said, it's too late for me. The door's closed. My time is up. Elizabeth reminds us that we are never too old, never too young, We're never too far down the road. We're never too broken for God to do something extraordinary. In 1527, a Spaniard by the name of Cabeza de Vaca, he was an explorer. Cabeza de Vaca actually means head of a cow. I don't know what he looked like, but that's what they call him. He departed from Spain as a member of the Royal Spanish Expedition on a mission to, uh, as they did back then, colonize the mainland of, at that point, the Gulf Coast. And within several months of landing near present-day Tampa Bay, Florida, it was only Cabeza and three other men who had survived the whole expedition that went with 600 men originally. They kind of washed up on shore, half-starved, sick, homesick, six years of this. And in his journal, he writes this account of of having encountered the indigenous peoples who met them, and they were all sick. And they asked Devaka, these white European men, to heal their sick people. And Devaka writes in his journal that he knew we had, we have no such power, but we better try or else we're going to die. And so he said, we prayed for strength, we prayed on bended knee and in the agony of our hunger. And when they blessed each one with the sign of the cross, with prayers that they remembered from their home countries, they woke up the next day and it appeared as if all the people had been healed. He writes, to our amazement, the aliens said they were well. He said, being Europeans, we, we thought we had given up to doctors and priests our ability to heal. But here it was, still in our possession. The power to heal was ours after all. And he writes this wonderful line, We were more than we thought we were. We were more than we thought we were. We're never too old, too young, too shipwrecked, too broken for God to do something surprising with our lives. We are more than we thought we were. That's what Elizabeth understood about her life. That's why Mary saw in her a wisdom that could make sense of her own messiness. There's one more thing about the hill country, though. Something that Elizabeth could only understand this situation because of where she comes from. And that is because by living in the hill country, she understands how the world really works. 
Now, she understands that she's not going to live forever. She understands the rhythms of life and death. She understands that her role is not to be served as an elder, but to serve the younger generation. Her role, she understands, is to midwife a new generation. I think when you spend enough time in hardship in the so-called hill country, the wisdom that comes to us is that we know we're not going to live forever. And we know that the world doesn't revolve around us. And that's different from in the city and all the busyness of life and we're just so crazy uh, at such a crazy pace and we think we're never going to die. That the whole world revolves around us. But Elizabeth knows that at the end of the day, her ultimate purpose is to raise up the Marys of the next generation. This is the purpose of living a long life. It's not to be honored, but it's to honor what God is doing in the young people among us. What does Elizabeth say to Mary? You are blessed, and we're all going to be blessed because of you. We often get this honor code backwards. Sometimes we say, like, I've worked hard, I've paid my dues, I've made my sacrifices, it's time for you to serve me. But Elizabeth knows her Bible. Genesis 25, which says the elder shall serve the younger. And her work is now to, to honor what God is going to do in Mary's life. All of our lives will end. The question is, will our living and our ending create a new beginning for others. In every generation, God is doing a new thing, not the same old thing. Nearly eight years ago, I was asked to uh, consider leaving my church in San Diego and uprooting my family and, and leaving my church and coming to Colorado to serve St. Andrew. And it was in so many ways this improbable, implausible proposal from a bishop that didn't even know it was one that was fraught with all kinds of risks, uh, not just for me, but for you. Um, <laughs> you're like, we know, yeah. You know, I might have turned it down altogether were it not for a Yoda in my life at that time. He was a man about 25, maybe 30 years my senior, and he had been a pastor in the Midwest in the early 1980s when his marriage fell apart, hill country. He got divorced. And in the divorce, the bishop said to him, you are unappointable. We can't send you to a church. It was hill country for him. He was devastated. He had to find ways to lean on God and, and to learn how to survive and carve out a new life. And so he moved to the West Coast and he started this advertising business, which became extraordinarily successful. He used his money very generously to support, in particular, uh, women who were starting businesses. He would create microloans and allow women really to, to be empowered. We were talking about this move to Colorado and all the risks and pitfalls associated with that when he quoted this line from the German poet and philosopher Friedrich Holderlin, who said, but where the danger is also grows the saving power. Where the danger is also grows the saving power. And for him, it wasn't just a great line. It was his truth. He had proved it with his own life. And in that moment over lunch, 
it occurred to me I, I could too. I could try. And so on our way to Bethlehem, we stopped by the hill country to meet up with some Yodas to remind us we're not alone on this road. There are those walking with us that we have a deeper understanding of the big picture of what God is doing in our lives. In the hill country, we have three takeaways. The world breaks everybody, but some are strong in the broken places. It's never too late for God to do something surprising in our lives. We are called to live in such a way that our ending will create for others a new beginning.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.